Scripture is filled with examples of people who started off great with God, but at the end of their life had gone off the rails. These were kings and priests, prophets, judges, and regular folks. People who, at one point in their life, you could look and you could see they were truly followers of God. They were doing God's will. They were striving for it. But something happened. And by the end of their life, they are no longer following God. They are no longer doing God's will. They, their lives really kind of end more in shame than in glory for their faithfulness to God. Life is also filled with examples like this. People who started off devoted to Jesus. They surrendered to Christ and they committed their lives to Him. They were active in their service to Him. They were faithful to church. They were people who shared the gospel, who found and used their spiritual gifts. And then at some point, their lives went off the rails and they departed from the faith, or they at least departed from their faithfulness to Jesus. These are pastors, missionaries, college presidents, authors, and regular people. And in recent years, these stories have begun to weigh on my mind and my heart. I think what a tragedy it would be to start off on fire for Jesus and at some point to go off the rails and depart from my faith or my faithfulness to Jesus. One of my great desires in life is to finish well. To finish the race set before me so that when my life is over and I stand before the Lord, I will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has that longing and that desire. If we are truly born again, our great desire is to be faithful unto the end, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we want to know, how can we finish well? How can we ensure that even though we have started well, we're going well now, how can we be sure we are going to be faithful unto the end? So we're going to look at this morning. So open your Bible to Joshua 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. I do not know what page number that's on. I forgot to write it down in my notes. It's on page 22 in my Bible if that's helpful. Uh, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. No, it's on page 395. Joshua 22, we're going to look at the first nine verses. But one verse will be our focus. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said unto them, You have kept all that the servant of the Lord, Moses, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice and all that I commanded. You have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren as he promised them. Therefore now return ye and get to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But... Take diligent heed to do the commandment of the law, the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to one, now, to one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan, but the other half thereof Joshua or gave Joshua among their brethren on this side of the Jordan westward. And when Joshua sent them away also unto their tents, and he blessed them. And he spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches unto your tents, with very much cattle and silver, with 
gold and with brass, with iron, with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned, departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, where where they possessed, according to the word of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. The title of the message this morning is Moving Forward to a Lifetime of Faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we do want to be faithful unto the end. Lord, we don't want to, to fall away. We don't want to give up in our devotion to you, our service to you. Lord, we long to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So let us learn from what Joshua said and to these two and a half tribes to learn to take diligent heed for our lives. Let us take it and apply it and let us search ourselves to see if maybe we've already begun to slack in some of these ways. And, and Lord, if we have, reveal it to us, but, but not in condemnation. But reveal it to us because you love us. Reveal it to us because you have better for us. Reveal it to us because you long for us to be faithful to the end far more than we long to be faithful into the end. Let your spirit come today and make this word living and active in our hearts to strengthen us where we need strengthening. To encourage us where we need encouraging. To convict us where we need convicting. And to to change us where we need changing. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So at the start of the chapter, Joshua calls the two and a half tribes that have their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan River, and he calls them to release them from their obligation. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the story, here's what's happened. As the children of Israel under Moses wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, they conquered some lands and they defeated some kings and they took their lands. And there was a a, a portion of land that the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they went to Moses and they said, hey, we have cattle. This is good cattle land. Why don't you just let us take our inheritance over here? And Moses, though, he kind of got angry at him because he was afraid. He was afraid if they didn't go to war, cross the river and go to war, that it would discourage the hearts of the rest of the tribes because that had already happened. The other tribes had already been discouraged at one point and had not gone forward as they were supposed to. So Moses said to him, what are you trying to do? Are you going to stay here? While your brethren go to war and discourage their hearts and cause fear in their lives? And they said, no, 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 no. Here's what we'll do. We'll go with you. We'll cross the Jordan. We won't stay here. We'll leave our our lives, our wives, our cattle, our children here. But we men of war, we're going to march across the Jordan with you. And we will fight until the very end. And we will stay until the Lord gives rest into the land. And once the Lord has given rest to everyone... Then we'll come back and we'll inherit over here. And Moses said, okay, that is a good idea. Then in Joshua chapter 1, the the Israelites cross over the Jordan River. As they cross over, Joshua calls the two and a half tribes and he reminds them about their promise. And they say, 
We will do what we have said. We will keep our promise. We will be faithful to the end. We will obey you just as we have obeyed Moses up into this day. But now they've accomplished the mission. The land is largely taken. They are dividing up the spoil of the land. One tribe will go this way. Another tribe will go that way. There are no more large campaigns to be fought. So Joshua commends them on keeping their word. They had been faithful. They had done what they said they would do. They were faithful to the Lord up to this day. But Joshua knows the human heart. Joshua knows what people are like. And he knows the temptation once the battle is over and once the people are dispersed to everyday life, the temptation will be to depart from the Lord. To to start well, to have moved well for many years, and then to not finish well in their life. And so he gives them a challenge. Verse 5, he tells them they must take Diligent heed to do some things. They've been faithful in the past, but if they want to continue to be faithful to the Lord, if they want to continue to do what God has created this nation to be and to do, they must take diligent heed to do these things. And the idea of of diligent heed is to be very careful about it. It's not... To to do something once and then not think about it again for another couple of months. It's not even to think about it maybe on a weekly basis. The picture of diligent heed means to be constantly guarding your life. Constantly paying attention. Constantly examining yourself and ensuring on at least a daily basis you are doing these things. Because Joshua knew the only way to ensure future faithfulness was to focus on daily Diligence. And what's true of the two and a half tribes is true for us as well. Many in here today have been faithful unto the Lord for many, many years of their lives. But the reality is, past faithfulness does not guarantee future faithfulness. If it did, there wouldn't be stories of men like Demas in the Bible, there wouldn't be stories of Pastors and missionaries who had to leave their jobs or who at the end of their ministries and lives lost their reputations because it turns out they had been living double lives or because they strayed and they turned or or even people we know. We know people. We know people who started well, ran well, but did not finish well. Past faithfulness is no guarantee of future faithfulness. Future faithfulness depends on daily diligence. Future faithfulness depends on daily diligence. And verse 5 gives us three areas of life where we must have daily diligence to ensure our future faithfulness. First is be diligent to love Jesus. He tells them to to take diligent heed. And then he says to love the Lord your God. Now this isn't the order it's given. But I took it out of order on purpose. Because in many ways loving the Lord our God is the key to everything else we're going to talk about today. Really it's the key to everything. 
To love the Lord our God is the key to being a faithful disciple to Jesus. You know, if you've read your New Testament, you're familiar with the, the story of religious leaders going to Jesus and asking Him one day, what is the, the greatest commandment in the law? And that was a, a big deal. That was a big question in their day. They had great theological debates over what was the greatest commandment in the law. And the way they understood the law, they interpreted it as if the law of Moses, there were over 600 commands. Then there was numerous uh, traditions that had been passed down from the, uh, from the fathers before them. This included ritual, ethical, moral, and ceremonial laws, as well as positive and negative laws. Uh, and, and they spent just no telling how much time arguing and fighting and discussing each group, trying to prove their point was the most important one. Now, in some ways, when they were asking Jesus, what they were trying to do was alienate him from one group or another. Because the, the people and the religious leaders were divided about what was the most important. And for Jesus to take any side would have maybe ingratiated him to one side, but it would have alienated him from all the rest. And it was a trap. And they were trying to entrap him in his words. But Jesus, of course, was smarter than they were. And Jesus actually knew the right answer to the question. And so while they wanted him to give an answer, and they wanted him to give a definite answer, he, he gave one. And the answer he gave was simple. So simple, it could have sounded simplistic, and it was so profound, they were forced to admit he was right. And he put them all in their place with his answer, because it brought everything back to the main thing. And here was his answer. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's interesting because there's, there's really no way at some point in their lives the religious leaders did not know that. Being a Pharisee was a demanding task. There was a lot you had to go through in order to be a Pharisee, to become a Pharisee. It was a rigorous life. And so most of those who, who pursued the life of a Pharisee and took the vow to be a Pharisee and started off as a Pharisee had done it because they loved the Lord their God and they wanted to do His will above all else. But somewhere along the way they got off track and they began to focus on the minutiae of the law far more than they did on the God of the law. And Jesus answers a call to begin to focus on what truly matters. Here's the great commandment. The number one thing. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. And with all your mind. The second is life unto it. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he says... To, to really tie it in a bow to show how significant these two commands were. He says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Now that phrase, the law and the prophets, is significant in the context in which it is given. The phrase, the law and the prophets, was used to represent all of God's word. And what Jesus was saying is, if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and if we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, then we will fulfill every other command in Scripture. Right? If I love God 
If I love Jesus with my heart, soul, and mind, I will live my life in the way Jesus wants me to live. And if I love my neighbors, I love myself, I will do everything in Scripture, it commands me toward other people. Now one of the ways to think about this is to think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are broken up into two sections. The first four deal with our relationship with God. Shall have no other gods before me. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And then the last six deal with our relationship to others. Don't bear false witness. Don't murder. Don't covet. And if I love, and really every other command in the Old and even the New Testament can be traced back in some way to one of those ten commandments. So if I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and mind, I will obey the first four commandments of Scripture, of the Ten Commandments, and I will also obey every other command in Scripture dealing with my relationship and my devotion to Jesus, how I live for Him, how I talk about Him, how I serve Him. And if I love my neighbor as I love myself, I will fulfill the last six commands of the Ten Commandments, and I will fulfill every other command given in Scripture about how to treat other people made in the image of God. Now, part of what this means for us is every failure, or every failure in the Christian life is a failure of love. When I fail in my service and my devotion to Jesus, it is always because I love someone or something more than I love the Lord my God. And if I fail in my relationship toward another human being, fail to treat them in the way Scripture commands, it is because I love someone else or some other thing more than I love my neighbor. I'm not loving them as I love myself. This means every, everything, Everything in our lives as disciples of Jesus rises and falls on love. Our love for the Lord and our love for others. Now here's a, an implication from this. It is possible for us to be busy with all sorts of religious activities without loving the Lord our God of our heart, soul, and mind. We can come to church every time the doors are open. We can read our Bible every day. We can pray every day. We can give of our time, our talents, and our tithe, and generally do all sorts of stuff in the name of Jesus, and yet not love Jesus as we should. Now, we may think, no, that's not possible. Why would I do all of those things if I didn't love the Lord? But remember the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They were the epitome of religious devotion. They did all the things the law commanded. They tithed to the very most minute thing they grew in their garden. And yet, they did not love the Lord their God. We could even go to the book of Revelation and we could see Revelation 2 about the church at Ephesus that was busy about the God's work and doing all kinds of, of stuff. 
And they had all of these commendations from Jesus. And then he says, but I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. Now, obviously, it's important for us to do all these things. It's important for us to come to church. To give of our time, our talents, our tithe. And generally do all sorts of stuff. But to do it without loving the Lord our God. With our heart, soul, mind and strength. In, in many ways. Well it is to miss it all. In many ways it, it kind of becomes a, a worthless act. Again that can sound too harsh. You're kidding. Worthless act. But again we go back to Revelation. And Jesus told the church at Ephesus. He said if you don't repent. Of your lack of love for me. And if you don't return and do your first works. Your love based works. Then I'm going to come and I'm going to take the candlestick. Which represented the church. Away. And what he said was. If you don't serve me because you love me. I'll shut the church down. I would rather there not be a church. In that location. Than there be a church. Without love. For me. If we want to be diligent to our Lord. If we want to be faithful unto the end. First and foremost. We must love. The Lord our God. With all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Because duty. Duty is good. I'm I'm a big fan of duty. Duty carries us a long way. But duty never carries us as far as love does. Duty never takes us to the same place as love will take us. Duty will lead us to do the bare minimum. Love will lead us to do our very best. Now, when I was first in the army, I loved being a soldier. I woke up every day amazed. I lived in Berlin, Germany, and I was a soldier in the United States Army. I was, I mean, it was just like, wow. A kid from Pickett, Oklahoma... Walk in Berlin, Germany. It was amazing to me. And every night, I mean, I had a routine. At 7 o'clock during the weeknights, I went into my room. I locked the door. I turned the TV off. I ironed. I starched my uniforms. I spit-shined my boots. I read my manuals to make sure I knew what needed to be done. Now, none of that was the standard. I didn't have to do any of those things. But I loved being a soldier. And so I went above and beyond what was required of me. Then there became a day and I determined there was something else I could do with my life but dig fighting positions in 33 degree weather while it rained. And at that point, I determined to get out of the army. And guess what? I didn't spit shine my boots anymore because that wasn't required. I did what was required. They were always shiny. I never looked like I'd melted a Hershey bar on them. They always looked good. My uniform was always ironed, but I didn't starch it because that took extra time. Duty made me do the bare minimum. But love caused me to go above and beyond. It will always be the same in our relationship with Christ. Our duty to do things will carry us so far and no more. But our love for the Lord our God, it will carry us far further than duty ever could. If we want to remain faithful unto the end, we must ensure that we love the Lord our God. We must daily be diligent to ensure we love 
Jesus. Secondly, be diligent to obey Jesus. Take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commands. Of course, that's just clearly the idea of obeying God, which is shouldn't be surprising. I mean, if you are even remotely familiar with Scripture, you know the idea of obeying God comes up over and over again. I mean, it is... One of the key themes all throughout Scripture is we are to be obedient unto the Lord our God. Scripture has so much to tell us about obedience, we could not cover everything there is to know about it today. But there are two key truths about obedience we do need to understand so we can let our obedience fuel our future faithfulness. Uh, And the first is this. Without obedience, we really have no assurance of our salvation. Right? If I don't live a life of obedience to Jesus, then I have no I have no legitimate way to say I know I'm saved. Let, let me show you this from scripture. And hereby we do know that we know him. So, here's how I can know I know Jesus. What is it? If we keep his commandments. But what if we don't keep his commandments? Well, then I can never really be sure if I know Him. I can never really be sure if I'm saved. But but this isn't the only place. He that saith, I know Him, I know Jesus, I'm saved, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if a person says, I know Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I've been saved by Jesus, but, but they don't live a life of obedience to Jesus, The truth is not in them, which means they're not saved. And more so, what John says is they are a liar. They are lying about it. I mean, they are lying. If they knew Jesus, they would obey Jesus. But there's more. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So what do I do if I, I love Jesus? We'll talk about this more in a second. Well, I, I obey Jesus. And my love-based obedience to Jesus, it, it gives me assurance I'm saved. But, but there's more. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk as he walks. So if I say I'm in Christ, I ought to live my life the way Jesus lived his life. How did Jesus live his life? He he lived in obedience to the Father. He always did those things that pleased his Father, the Bible says. So if we're going to claim to be in Christ, to be saved, we should live like Jesus. Now John lays it out very plainly. So plainly, there's not a lot of commentary needed needed to be given on those verses. They just are very clear. There are many places in the Bible that we could say, Those are hard to understand. But none of them are in these verses I just listed. They are all crystal clear. We have assurance of our salvation because of a life of obedience. Now, this brings us to the second truth about obedience. And that's why we obey. We we don't obey to be saved. See, the motivation... Matters. It's not enough to just do what we see in the Bible. Why do we do it? 
Why do we deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow Jesus? Why do we pursue holiness? Why do we pursue peace with all people? Why do we turn the other cheek? Why do we let our light shine before men? Why do we do it? The why matters. Our lifestyle of obedience is after we're saved and it flows out of our love for Jesus. Turn to John 14. And hold your finger here because we are coming back. But John 14 should be page 823. John 14 and 15. Now we've already seen the importance of loving the Lord our God. Loving Jesus. John 14 and 15. If you love me... Keep my commandments. Now look at John 14 and 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. Now look at verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my commandment, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Okay. So Jesus is saying, if we love Him, we'll obey Him. But, but that's, that's still a stretch from saying, if I don't obey Jesus, I don't love Jesus. But, look at verse 24. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. Again, these are really disturbingly clear. Jesus, not me, Jesus says, if I love Him, I will obey Him. And he says, if we don't obey him, it's because we don't love him. Which I think is the connection to why obedience or lack of obedience empties us of having any assurance of our salvation. Can I legitimately say I've been born again, I've been saved by Jesus if I have no love for Jesus? Or can I legitimately say I've been born again through faith in Jesus if what I feel about Jesus doesn't compel me to live for Jesus? I really don't think we can. I mean, that's like saying, I love my wife, but I cheat on her all the time. Well, I love my wife, but I slap her around all the time. Oh, I I love her. She's my favorite. Except for these on the side over here. Nobody would believe I really love my wife if I treated her like that. In the same way to say, "I, I love Jesus. And I can give these great and weepy testimonies about how much I love Jesus. And yet then I go out and do all the things He said not to do. And don't do any of the things He said to do. Jesus said the issue there is because you really don't love Me. John says the issue there is because you have no truth in you. You've never really been saved. If we love Jesus, it's because we've been saved by Jesus. We've been saved by Jesus and we love Jesus. We will obey Jesus. It is the natural outflow of our lives. So if we want to ensure we are faithful to the end, we need to examine ourselves. Do I live a life of obedience to Jesus? But then we need to examine that obedience. Why? Am I doing it to check a box? Am I doing it to earn His favor? Am I doing it so that I will be good enough? Or do I do it out of a love 
faith-based devotion to Jesus, just un, unbelievably amazed at all He has done for me. The why matters and the what matters. That doesn't mean we don't blow it. Go ahead and turn back to Joshua 22. That doesn't mean we don't blow it. I, I, I wish we could get to a place where we never blew it. I don't think we do. I think as long as we live in this world, our sinful nature will pull at us. And at times we will give in to it. But if we love Jesus and if we're seeking to be obedient to Jesus, then those times where we blow it will lead us to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Our sin will break our hearts. Our sin will bother us. If our sin doesn't bother us, if our rebellion doesn't bother us, if our lack of obedience doesn't bother us, there are severe spiritual issues in our lives. And we ought to consider whether or not we have ever truly been born again. This obedience based on love testifies of the work of Christ in our lives. Future faithfulness depends on daily diligence. So we must daily be diligent to obey Jesus because we love Jesus. And then finally, be diligent to serve Jesus. We're told to cleave unto Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. And again, we're probably familiar with the idea of loving Jesus and obeying Jesus and even serving Jesus. I think that's one of the things about the Bible that's kind of neat to me. Most of the things that are really important are not going to be new. And, and they're not even really going to be like, I don't know, deep's not the right word to say it. They're going to be kind of simple. Right? And that can be what makes it so difficult. I was reading in my Bible yesterday, I guess, about Naaman, the general in Second Kings. And Naaman is a, a general from another nation and he has leprosy. And he wants to be healed. And they have this little Jewish maiden that they've taken and she works for him. And, and she tells him, she says, if you would go to the prophet in Jerusalem, he could heal you. So he doesn't go to the prophet, though, because he's a general. And a prophet's almost like a regular person. So he goes to the king. And the king's like, they're just trying to find a reason to attack us. I can't do anything. I'm not God. But Elisha sends a message. Tell Naaman to come to me. Naaman comes to Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. Sends his servant out there. And he says, tell him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, he'll be clean. Naaman is furious. He's like, I, I thought sure he would come out and greet me himself. And, and then he would call upon his gods and he would do some great act. But he just tells me to go dip in the Jordan. Are, are not seven rivers in our country cleaner and better than the Jordan? And he goes to storm off. And one of his servants says to him, but you know, Master, if he told you to do some great feat, you would go do it. Why not just go try this simple thing? Give a shot at that and see what happens from there. So in a huff, Naaman goes and he does the simple thing Elisha says, dips in the Jordan River. Lo and behold, 
The simple act is what brought his cleansing. I think it's that way with being diligent to Jesus. I think we want secret keys a lot of times. We want things that are mysterious. No one else has ever seen. That this is an insight I have no one else has ever had. And it's so complicated that if you don't follow my directions exactly, you'll never do it. And so we're always looking for this one thing that will fix everything and and will be new. And we can say, look at what I discovered. I figured this out. I learned a new thing. And God's like, hey, why don't you just love Jesus? And then why don't you just obey Jesus? And why don't you just serve Jesus? And if you're diligent to do those things, well, everything else will be okay. But we don't need to look so much for the deep and hard and mysterious things, the plain things, the common things, the ordinary things. That's the stuff that's where the power's at. That's the stuff that leads us to a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus. Now, serving Jesus can be done in a number, a number of ways. We can serve Jesus by sharing the gospel. We can serve Jesus by using our spiritual gifts. We can serve Jesus through being generous and giving. We can serve Jesus through our faithfulness to church. We can serve Jesus by helping those in need. Gosh, when we look at the book of Daniel, we can even serve Jesus by doing our very best on our jobs. There are are many, many ways we can serve Jesus. But there are specific attitudes, I guess you should say, we could have. And Paul lays out in Romans 12... How we should serve Jesus. Not the ways, but how. Not be slothful in business. Now, again, the business there is the business of serving the Lord. And slothful, it refers to laziness. It means to be lazy, to be slow moving, to be sluggish, lethargic, or complacent. We're not to be lazy in our service to Jesus. If you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, you know it speaks a lot about laziness. And it says nothing good about laziness. But one of the, the key attributes of a lazy person in Proverbs is they are experts at making excuses. But the lazy person always has an excuse as to why they can't do what needs to be done. Like if Proverbs 22 and 13, 26 and 13 if we were to look at those, we'd find the lazy person talks about there's a lion outside. So they can't go outside because they might get eaten. And the picture is always looking for an excuse. Some of us are always filled with excuses as to why we cannot be fully committed to Jesus in our lives. We always have a reason as to why we cannot be active and faithful at this point in our service and our devotion to Jesus. We, we will at some point. We have good intentions. We're going to follow through. But if we're not careful, what ends up happening is our good intentions become substitute for legitimate actions. And we look back over our lives and we realize all the years we have actually done nothing in our service to Jesus. All we did was make plans that we never followed through with. All we did was explain why we couldn't do the things that that we might have even wanted to do or should have been done. And this happens because we're lazy. 
It happens because we are slothful in our service. As believers in Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, our love for Jesus should lead us to diligently serve Him. Also, we're to be fervent in spirit in serving the Lord. Now, the S in spirit is small, meaning it's not about the Holy Spirit, but it's about our spirit. And it means we're to be excited or enthusiastic in our service to Jesus. One of my commentaries said this, the believer must have a holy zeal for Christ. He must be aflame in his service to Christ. You know, if we were to be honest about what we see in Scripture, about what it's like to serve God, we would see excitement and enthusiasm is a key idea. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Whom shall I send or who will go for us? Here am I. Send me. The people in the Bible, once they understood the greatness of the God they knew, they were all in. I mean, I mean, how could they how could they not? How could Isaiah see a holy God in the temple with angels worshiping him and say, gosh, I hope somebody else will volunteer because because I don't want to. I've got to watch Desperate Housewives on Friday night. I can't possibly go take the message. How could Moses see the burning, fiery bush not be burned up? And even though he made excuses, how could he not go when he saw the greatness and the power of his God? Oh no, I've got to keep the sheep. Who's going to keep the sheep if I don't go? If I go? How can we know God sent his son To die the awful death we know He died. For us. How can we know that? How can we understand that? How can we understand what we were saved from and say, but no, it's uncomfortable. It scares me. I would rather take a nap. I would rather watch TV. It would inconvenience me. How can we not be fervent in spirit? When we know who our God is. And we know what Jesus has done. A sad. Horrific. Fact. As many believers get more excited about football games. TV shows. Movies. Or politics. Than they do about opportunities to worship. And serve. Jesus. This is me. Once the political season's over, I'll stop harping on politics, maybe. Let me ask you, ask ourselves. Have we told people to vote more than we've invited them to church? Have we informed people about political issues and the way they should vote more than we've informed them about Jesus and they should repent and believe? Have we been more involved in the debates than in the salvation of the lost in our communities? Are we more passionate about who wins next month than we are on who dies and goes to hell in our community? God help us if we are.
We are more excited for worldly things than we are for Jesus-y things. Something is wrong. Service to Jesus is more of a burden than a blessing. Something is wrong. If when opportunities to talk about Jesus come up, we look for ways out of it instead of having the conversation and telling them about the Lord who has saved us, something is wrong. What does it say about us as individual disciples of Jesus? When our every act of devotion to Jesus is a burden to be borne. What would it say about your marriage? If everything you wanted your spouse to do bothered them. If everything in their life, everything together. Oh, you want to go out and just us go out together? Man, I was really going to stay home and shine my shoes. Oh, come on. You want me to go to the store and get you something to eat? Man, ah. Would that speak of a healthy relationship? How would you feel if your spouse felt that way every time? How must Jesus feel when we're more excited about all the garbage in the world than we are about the Savior who has died? If we're not excited about opportunities to serve Jesus, something's wrong. And as disciples of Jesus, we've got to figure out what that is. Why are we more invested in a political party than in the salvation of souls? Why are we more invested in an athletic event than in the service to Christ? Why will we tell people about a good restaurant we ate at, but never tell people about the good God who has saved us? Why? Why? Why are we not fervent in spirit serving the Lord? Something is wrong. As disciples of Jesus, our love for Jesus should lead us to serve Jesus with enthusiasm. And if it doesn't, something is wrong. Future faithfulness depends on daily diligence. So we must seek that out because here's the reality. We don't long do things we're not passionate about, do we? Once we lose our passion, we do it out of duty. Once we do it out of duty, if there is nothing forcing us to do it, we eventually quit. If you're not excited about being faithful to Jesus, excited about serving Jesus, I I don't mean to speak bad, and I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but if you're not excited about Jesus and you stay not excited about Jesus, you will not be faithful to Jesus in the long run. You will find something else that excites you more, and you will pursue that rather than Jesus. So here we are. The question we need to know. Am I daily diligent to love Jesus? 
Does my love for Him fill me with actions of obedience and actions of devotion and service to Jesus? Am I excited, enthusiastic about my service to Jesus because I love Him so much? If the answer to any of those questions is no, something is wrong. And you have to deal with it. It will not just get better. It will not just fix itself. We do not gravitate toward loving Jesus or obeying Jesus or enthusiastically serving Jesus. That is not the natural drift of any human on the face of the earth. The natural drift is the opposite direction. And if we have already drifted from those and we do not take intentional effort today, diligent effort now, take diligent heed this moment, the drift will only continue. And we will not hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We will be a story somebody else tells about a person who was faithful to Jesus and served Jesus. But their life went off the rails. And they departed from their faith and their faithfulness to Christ. So, if you want to stand, we're not going to have any music or anything like that. This is just a time to, to deal with the Lord as He is dealing with you. It's time to call upon the Lord to say, search me, O God. And see if there's anything in my life that ain't right. And if there is, this is a time to repent of it. If you recognize something's not right, this is a time to be serious about it. If you want to come to the altars, you can. If you want to pray where you are, you can. What matters right now is what you're doing in calling out to Jesus.